0: with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. This is God's Word. Okay, now one of my favorite Bugs Bunny cartoons was the one where Bugs is being chased by this hideous monster for the whole cartoon, and he's finally in the clutches of this monster. This monster's got his hands literally around his neck. And Bugs says, Wait a minute, Dracula! Did you ever have the feeling that you were being watched? That the eyes of some strange thing were upon you? And as he's saying this, the monster's kind of going from stern to a little bit wide-eyed. And and then Bugs says, look, out there in the audience. And the monster turns to the camera, right? He's looking at us. who are watching this. He freaks out and he goes, people! And he goes running away, never to return again so Bugs is free. That makes sense? Good story, right? Okay, let's read the script. No, no. Um, Okay, cartoon aside, that's the question I want to ask you this morning. Right, honestly. Do you ever feel like you are being watched? I'm not talking about, you know, the government, big brother over your shoulder. I'm not talking about that. Do you ever feel like there are forces that constantly seem to be fighting against your ability to succeed or your ability to be happy? Do you feel like you're always fighting against something? Like there's always something wrong, but you can't seem to place your finger on what the cause is? I mean maybe at work. Do things just ever not Just seems like they never work out, no matter how hard you try, no matter what you do, something always goes wrong? Or do you feel like it's just it's just way too difficult to do the right thing in the culture of where you work? You know, or maybe it's in, in your marriage or your family or relationships. Do you feel like you're just never ever gonna learn how to communicate? You feel like no matter how hard you try, no matter how many times you try to become the person that you think you're supposed to be, your words are always misinterpreted, right? That no matter how hard you try to do the right thing, it never comes across to the other person the right way. They always seem to take it the wrong way. They always, it's like the mistrust just seems to show its, rear its ugly head at every moment. You know, that every time you think, all right, well, in the secret time that you have you're thinking okay i'm finally going to be the person i'm supposed to be and then you go and you do this act right this happens a lot in marriage where one spouse finally resolves to become the right person and then they do this thing like maybe they say something really nice to their spouse and instead of receiving it in this amazing amount of love what does the spouse do what are you doing Why are you doing this? Like you haven't done are so you're trying to figure, Hey, this is part of this new leaf, but you don't want to admit that, right? You don't want to say, Hey, I'm trying to be this new person and you know, help, help me out here. Instead, you want to just be able to act this new way and have it be received with love. But it's suspicion that you get right. I mean, have you ever felt that way? Do you feel like no matter what you do, something always goes wrong. You're always being unappreciated or you get the wrong reaction. Well, the world that we live in is broken, and these things are indications of the brokenness of the world that we live in, right? I mean, we know, we don't have to be taught that there's something wrong. And it's true that we do contribute to many of the problems that we have in our lives, right? Some of, it, some of the fault lies with us, but the Bible says that there's something more. The Bible says that there's actually a person behind what's wrong with the world. The Bible says that the darkness, the evil, the brokenness of life is being organized, thoroughly organized by someone who is powerful, experienced, and determined. Think about that. And this one isn't just sort of a a chaotic force of evil. This one wants to rule. This one wants to rule. He wants to rule the world. His will, his impetus, the impetus behind everything that he does is to be the one in control, He wants to control everything and everyone in the world. He wants to destroy those who oppose him. And and he opposes and fights against all of God's designs for the way the world is supposed to be. This person is the devil. And the devil has been building a kingdom from the beginning. right? From the fall with Adam and Eve, the devil has been at work. Now, some people don't believe in the devil. They think it's ridiculous. Other people have a view of the devil that's kind of, he's sitting on one shoulder and he's the one who's always trying to get you to do the wrong thing. And then you maybe have a guardian angel on the other shoulder so people think about him that way. But the devil is a ruler and he has a kingdom. You need to understand that. Okay? He is called the ruler of this world in Scripture. And he's powerful and he is expanding and building his empire in every possible way he can. Now, in this kingdom of darkness, there's a constitution, right? There is a set of bylaws that operate in the kingdom of darkness. And those, those bylaws, that constitution, essentially is gratification, selfishness. Those are the grounds of the kingdom of darkness. This is the constitution of his kingdom. The devil wants to convince you that you are the most important person in the world. If you read, I actually went and found the book of Satan. And if you read it, it doesn't tell you to go and do all kinds of occult, weird, sort of wacky type things. The book of Satan, what it says is that nobody is going to deal with your needs. You need to put your needs first. Isn't that interesting? That your needs are paramount and your happiness is paramount. This is sort of at the top of what the devil is trying to do. And he has deceived an enormous number of people, right? There are, he's got demonic forces. He's got forces that work for him. He has people under him that work for him. Principalities, our text mentions, powers, world rulers are here in our text. And we see these things, these people, these forces, they're trying to extend his reign and to serve him in his cause. That is what is behind the evil in the world today. Ultimately, that is the source. Now, I've always wondered, have you ever wondered about this? Like, why does does the devil keep fighting? I mean, anybody, any Christian who's read the end of the Bible knows what happens to him, right? And presumably, the devil knows the Bible better than we do. So he's read the end. He knows what's going to happen to him. Why does he keep fighting? What's in it for him? Have you ever thought about that? Well, an answer to that occurred to me a couple years ago, and it actually scared me. It really honestly scared me. I think the reason the devil continues to fight and continues to build his kingdom is because he doesn't believe what the Bible says about his end. He still thinks he can win. And honestly, I think if you look at the world, (laughs) in some ways it would be hard to argue with him, wouldn't it? You know, there are some places in the world where the gospel and the church and the influence of God and what is right is exploding. But then you look at our country, and depending on what, you know, what your perspective is, there are lenses that you can wear that would make you think, and just look at the history of, of humanity, right? For thousands of years, there was only one family <laughs> that was on the right side. You know, there was only one nation. I mean, it seems like if you're the devil, you're thinking things are pretty good for you, right? I don't think the devil believes it. I think he thinks that he can still win. And so the devil attacks us. He attacks us through temptation, but he also attacks us by building a system that has infiltrated society. And it's a system that, that makes a society that honors people who put themselves first, that honors people who are designed to gratify themselves and their desires. I mean, this is the system that we live in. The system dishonors the people who are trying to serve God. And this is the attack. This is, these are some of the ways that the devil attacks. Now, what he doesn't tell you, you know, as he does his recruiting, what he doesn't say is that participating in his kingdom is enslaving. And he won't tell you that. He'll say, I mean, it's the classic you know, in so many ways, like, I'll offer you the world if you'll just bow down to me, right? Dan Yankees, sell me your soul, and I'll make you the greatest baseball team in the world, right? I mean, we see it in Pinocchio with, I mean, there's all kinds of places in literature and movies where we see this idea, like, what he does is he says, look, you can have it all if you'll just do this, right? But what he doesn't tell you is that participating in his kingdom is enslaving. It's enslaving to... It's debilitating. It produces a life where you are no longer in control. The promise is freedom, but the reality is now you are enslaved to him, to do his bidding, and your life becomes inward-focused. It becomes all-consuming, and you become... I mean, you kind of shrivel up inside. You shrivel up inside. Well, what can we do? I mean, we are surrounded by this all the time. Is there anything possibly that we could have to survive this onslaught. How are you doing? How was this last week for you? I mean, did you feel like you were part of his kingdom or part of the kingdom of God? I mean, it's tough. It's tough. And so Paul has shown us the war in the first three or four verses of this text, but then he shows us the solution. In our text, Paul says that your only hope, your only hope in this war is the armor of God. It's putting on the armor of God. That's Paul's solution. And it's interesting because when we talk about spiritual warfare, and we talk about the devil, and we talk about demons and how all this stuff works, there's people that are on both sides sort of of, of the continuum, right? There's some people that never, ever think about spiritual warfare, that never think about the devil, never think about any any explanation of things that go wrong outside of just the people and the natural causes of the circum- of, of whatever happens. Right? And then you've got people on the other side who think that the devil is behind everything. Right? If you don't get a good parking space when you go to the mall, right, well, that's the devil. He's trying to plague you, and he's trying to get you down. Right? Now, the neat thing about this and about Paul's solution is that the answer is the same no matter where you are on that spectrum. Okay? If you think the devil is around every corner, you need to put on the armor of God. If you don't think enough about the devil in your life and his influence in your life, you need to put on the armor of God. The answer is the same, and you know. And as we start, I think there are good reasons to acknowledge the influence of the devil. Okay, number one, the Bible says the devil is real. The Bible in this text says that he has schemes and he is out. He's out to get us. Okay, and he's out to destroy us. To to sort of he's like the board in, in Star Trek. You know, he's he's out to like pull us in and make us part of his kingdom. But I think also it's good because if you acknowledge the reality of this, you realize that there's something outside of you that's attacking and that something is incredibly powerful. And so you need power outside of yourself. You need resources that go beyond your own abilities. Okay. And then I think the other thing that helps when we begin to acknowledge the reality of spiritual warfare is that it casts a vision for what you're really fighting against. Okay. So for me to think that satan is trying to win me over or the devil is trying to pull me into his kingdom boy i'm not into that you know when i can recast temptation as the devil trying to pull me in it's a lot easier for me to say no right or if if i if the devil is exacerbating a conflict that i have with somebody and i realize oh wait a second there's more to it than just what's going on here we are missing each other so flagrantly that there's got to be something else that's going on here. When I realize that and I think, you know what, this is probably the work of the enemy keeping us detached or fighting or at war, when I realize that, it makes me want to stop fighting the other person and fight with them against our common enemy. Okay, and so these are some of the reasons why I think it's helpful to think through the armor of God in spiritual warfare. And so we're going to unpack the armor right now. We're going to do it in three steps. First, we're going to answer the question, what the armor is second, what you have, and then third, what you grab. So what the armor is, what you have, and what you grab. So first, what you have, or I'm sorry, first is uh, what the armor is. Now, this is a fantastic illustration. I think even reading it, you sort of get this vision of, whoa, this is pretty amazing. Um, But I think illustrations are only helpful if you actually understand them, right? Listening to this passage is inspiring. It sounds great, but what does it mean? Where does it come from? Why does Paul bring this up? Answer that question, you need to realize, well, Paul, again, Paul is in prison. Okay, whether he's in a house prison or he's in the jailish, more you know, more traditional kind of prison. Paul's in prison, and when you were in prison, you had a you had a soldier, a Roman soldier, who was standing guard over you. Okay, and so there Paul is, and he sees this Roman soldier and he's fully dressed in his armor. And so Paul's mind starts working and he realizes that this armor is a picture of the gospel. His armor is a picture of the good news. And then, as Paul's processing this and maybe letting his mind run, his mind begins to bring to him passages of the Old Testament. Old Testament scriptures. Throughout the Old Testament, God is actually pictured as a warrior wearing armor. If you just read the book of Isaiah in chapter 11, chapter 52, chapter 59, you see an image of God dressed in armor coming to fight and to do battle with the enemies of his people. And so what Paul does is he puts these two things together. The soldier that's right next to him and these Old Testament images of God. And he closes this letter with this incredible image of the battle that Christians are engaged in. And so by doing this, what he also does, he sort of summarizes the entire letter. It's like he takes all the truths from the first six chapters. And he connects them to these different pieces of armor. So that's part of it. But what is it? Well, the armor is a way to understand what God has given you to strengthen you in your daily life. Okay? It's an image so that you can understand what God does. So this is another way of God telling you that you're alive spiritually and that you are strong and that you're united to Jesus. Okay? That's what the armor is doing. It shows you what God has done for you and what the armor does to you. And so you put these things on. Paul says, put on the armor of God. You put these things on by believing, by believing that you have them. Okay? And so there's two groups of things here. There's, you know, there's two lists of three. And so the first of these two lists of three is the second point. It's what you have. And this is verses 14 and 15. Paul first says, gird yourself with the belt of truth the belt of truth buckled around your waist. Now, back then, soldiers had these tunics that they wore, and the tunics were kind of like long, sort of squarish um, or rectangular garments that were sort of knitted together here, the armholes stick out. Well, when it came time to do battle, they would have a belt that they would use to cinch up their robes. You know, the robes would hang down, so they'd cinch their robes up under this belt, pull it really tight to keep themselves from tripping or stumbling. You know, have you ever been wearing a pair of pants that was too long, you know, when you're barefoot? Or maybe wore a robe that was too long? You understand the image of being tripped up because your clothing is, is loose. Well, spiritually, temptation is like being tripped. Okay, when you are tempted, that is Satan trying to throw things in, trying to trip you up. And so what keeps you from tripping? Paul says here, it's the truth. The truth keeps you from tripping. It provides clarity. It makes you ready to serve. You can know quickly what the right thing to do, the wrong thing to do is in a situation. You don't get confused. All this happens when you know the truth and when you can remind yourself of the truth. And so remembering the truth of Scripture, whatever it is, is really how to cinch up and be ready for battle. Okay, then Paul talks about the breastplate of righteousness. Okay, now a breastplate you know, I don't think you even need to see one to know what it is. Usually it was made of beaten metal, bronze or something else. It would cover from the collar all the way down to the waist. And these things protected the soldier's vital organs, right? you got heart, you've got the guts, you've got the lungs, the intestines. It was really the ultimate defense. It was, It was sort of your last line of defense, you know, if the enemy could break through your other means of defense. And so it protected the vital organs. Now, For us, saying the breastplate of righteousness, this is an amazing picture of the gospel. Okay, think about this for a second. No matter what you've done, no matter who you are, when you believe in Jesus, God covers you with a breastplate of righteousness. Okay, and so when Satan breaks through all your defenses, when he bats away your shield and gets by your sword, and he goes to stick you, what protects you? It's this breastplate. And what Paul is saying is that it's righteousness. Righteousness protects you, but it's not your righteousness. Okay? My righteousness is pretty holy. Okay? Not H-O-L-Y, holy, but H-O-L-E-Y. Right? My righteousness is full of holes. If my righteousness were going to be developed to be some sort of a breastplate, it would basically be like wearing a T-shirt. Okay, not a whole lot of strength there, not a whole lot of defense. But what does the gospel say? The gospel says that this is the breastplate of of righteousness. This is the armor of God. This is the righteousness of God that you get. Jesus is righteousness. He was perfect in every way. And when he gives you his righteousness, it's a gift. And so Paul is saying here that that is what covers you. That is what provides that defense. It's not your own ability to obey, but it's the righteousness of Christ. That ultimately is what protects you, protects your heart, protects your lungs, protects you and keeps you alive. Now, there are a lot of people who think that Christianity teaches that if you receive this perfect life of Christ, then it doesn't matter how you live. You know, it gets a lot of people upset. A lot of non-Christians don't like Christians or the church because Christians act like, well, I'm covered for that, so it doesn't really matter that I did this thing that was wrong. That's not how the armor works, though. If you're wearing the righteousness of Christ, then you have the righteousness of Christ. It's not just on you, but it's in you. It's in you, too, okay? So it does protect you on the outside, but it also changes you on the inside. This is—it's Jesus is not into hypocrites, okay? And so this breastplate of righteousness both protects and transforms who you are. Well, then Paul says, these shoes of the gospel of peace. Now, these shoes, again, for the soldiers, they wore spiked shoes. They were like cleats. They'd help you dig in. they give you traction, stability, and sure-footedness. Okay, and so not only did this keep soldiers firm in their stances, but it also enabled soldiers to push, to push the line of battle forward so that the, the, the battle could take place deeper and deeper within the enemy camp. Okay, And so what Paul is saying here, though, for us is that we stand in the peace of God's love. That's that's what we stand. It's a peace that we are united to Jesus and that he is committed to us. It reminds me of Romans 8.31. You know, if God is for us, who could stand against us? When you remember this truth, when you remember this idea, this gospel of peace, it enables you to stand and to stand firm it gives you traction and sure-footedness you're not stumbling around or being pushed back when you understand the peace that you have with god and what else is amazing about this is that the gospel of peace makes your presence beautiful okay it makes you a joy to be around why well this idea of the shoes of the gospel of peace it's a quote from isaiah chapter 52 verse 7 it refers to the messenger who comes at the end of a long, enduring time of suffering and pain and anguish and loss. And this messenger comes to announce the end of suffering. The messenger comes to announce the triumph of good over evil. You know, And this is the good news. This is the whole point of this letter, that God in Jesus is blessing the world, that God is joining people together in a family, that people are getting along well, that people are loving each other. There's peace between people, and there's peace with God. You know, it's though these people are being brought back to life and they're being reconciled again to each other. This peace and this good news is exactly what the world needs to hear. It's exactly the kind of thing that enables us to stand against the darkness, to be able to say, wait a second, God has made peace with us. God has made peace with us and each other. And what's amazing is that you carry this message These shoes are going to be on you. They're on you. You wear these shoes. You carry this message. You get to go with confidence into every place where this message needs to be heard. And this reminds me of John chapter 9. There was a man who was born blind, and Jesus healed him. Well, then once he's been healed, he starts telling people, and then the enemy shows up and the enemy attacks him and tries to get him to denounce Jesus and says things about Jesus and and this new Christian, this new follower, maybe just a few days old, you know, in terms of his faith in Jesus, he stands up to the most powerful religious leaders of his day, and he says, well, you're saying a lot of stuff, not really sure about what you're talking about, but here's what I know. I was blind, and now I see. He's wearing the gospel of peace and he stands up to these incredibly powerful leaders and he stands firm because he's talking about the peace that comes from the gospel. I was blind and now I see and the enemy had nothing to say. The enemy didn't know what to do. And what's powerful about this is that the enemy cannot deny your testimony, your story, what God is doing in your life. He can try to attack anything else, but he can't take away what God is doing in you. you know, and so when you are in the midst of a conversation like that, you can still, you're wearing the gospel of peace. And if all else fails, you can tell them what God has done for you. That gives you stability and traction. Now, what's amazing about these first three things is that you can't take them off any more than you can take Jesus off. Once you believe, you are wearing these things. Okay, there's a difference between these three things and the second three things. But the key for these three is that when you're united to Jesus, when you believe in him, you never, ever stop having these things on. So even when you don't know that you have them on, you're wearing them. Okay, so you might not have known this. How many of you came in here and knew that you had a a breastplate of righteousness? How many of you knew that you were wearing shoes that had the gospel of peace? How many of you knew that you had a belt of truth around your waist? I mean, isn't that kind of been the theme in so many ways of the series that we've done on Ephesians? How many times over the last few months have you read something in the the text or heard one of us say something about you and you thought, well, I didn't know that was true about me? I mean, that's that's kind of the, the dynamic, you know, where Paul is saying, look, you have these things on already when you believe. The key is remembering the key is believing that you have them on. That's how they become activated and, and effective and powerful in your life. So there are things that every soldier wears, but then there's things that every soldier needs to take up when the call to battle comes. Right? If you're in the middle of two battles, you're gonna re- when, you, when you stop to rest, what do you do? You don't take off all your armor. You just sit under the tree. You take off your helmet. You put your shield down and your sword. Right, you're resting there. When the call to battle comes, you've got to pick some things up, right? You've got to grab your shield, you grab your helmet and stick it on your head, and then you pick up your sword and you go. And that's what Paul says next. Okay, so point two is what you have. Point three is what you grab. This is verses sixteen to eighteen. So Paul says, first take up the shield of faith. Now, there were two main kinds of shields back then. You know, in the gladiator movies, when you see them fighting, they had these little tiny things that went around their, their, on their forearms, right? You kind of used it to defend and block. That's not the kind of shield. There's a different word for shield that Paul doesn't use here. He uses a different word than this. What Paul is describing here is this shield, it's a two-and-a-half-foot-wide and, and four-and-a-half-foot-tall giant thing. It's, you know, they were inches thick. They were usually made of real thick wood, covered in leather, and then had metal around the outsides. Oftentimes, they were drenched in water so that if somebody happened to shoot a flaming arrow at you, that the shield itself would extinguish the flames from that. And so with these shields, I mean, you're covered from basically from like knees to the collar, right? This thing stands before you, and I mean, you could hide behind it if you needed to. Um, Groupings of soldiers would come together, and they'd form a wall. And uh, and so it was really, it's like the first line of defense. And Paul is saying, that's what your faith is for you. Your faith is a shield. It's the first defense you have against the enemy. It's kind of interesting because you got all these other things, but the shield sort of stands out front, right? Your faith is your first line of defense. Your faith is the first thing that stands against the enemy. And when the enemy's shooting his flaming arrows at you, the enemy, the enemy how does he do that? Well, he lies. He lies to you. He lies to you about yourself. He lies to you about your faith, about your salvation, about other people. This is the image of these fiery arrows that come at you. And it's your faith in Jesus that keeps you from believing the devil's lies. It's remembering, wait a second, I believe in Jesus. And the stronger your faith, the more your faith encompasses more of the Scripture. In one sense, the thicker and broader your shield, the more of you it covers, and so what's interesting is that you think about what does a shield do, right? It's that first line of defense. But if you have a shield, what does that do to you in terms of your mental state? I mean It makes you bold, right? Think about it. You go in with a sword, and you know, you're ready to fight. You want to fight, but what if you had, a, like, a door in front of you, right? I mean, you, you're bold. You'll go farther in. You'll endure far more. You'll take on greater risks because you've got the protection of this massive shield in front of you. That's what our faith does. You can press further into the darkness. First John 5.4 says, this is the victory that overcomes the world. Our faith. Our faith. And then I guess if you think about this and, and the way it was used, your faith actually can also protect others. When you're, when you're able to encourage others and help them see God's purposes in the midst of what they're going through, when your faith expresses itself in love to your brothers or your sisters, your faith, I mean, this shield, in a sense, covers others. There's a great quote from um, uh, a book I read on the history of the Spartan people. And uh, this is what it says about the shield and, and kind of the armor. I think it fits real well here. It says this. It says, the Spartans excuse without penalty the warrior who loses his helmet or his breastplate in battle. Okay, so, if you lose one of these two things, there's no penalty, there's no consequence to that. But the Spartans punish with the loss of all citizenship rights the man who discards his shield. Why? Because a warrior carries helmet and breastplate for his own protection, but he carries a shield for his brother. The way the Spartans gathered in their lines, your shield actually covered the man next to you as you were attacking. I just thought, what a great image. You know, and, and we see this happen throughout the week in community groups, right? Isn't this what you do? When we gather together and we talk and, and pray for one another and encourage one another, support one another, in a sense, we are extending our shield to cover our brothers and sisters. Now, that's what community does. So Paul goes on, and then he says, taking the helmet of salvation. Now, the helmet saves your life, right? It protects your head. You had metal plates that came down to protect parts of your face. You know, it protects sometimes, you have know, the little holes right here. You know, it could protect your face. And so these are sort of the home run attacks. You know, the broad sword, the axe that comes at you to try to kill you in one blow. The helmet protects against those things. Now, spiritually speaking, what Paul is saying here, the helmet is the helmet of salvation, And so Paul is saying here that it's the knowledge of your salvation that protects you from these death blows. Okay? Doubt, discouragement, and depression come, and they are out to kill you. They're out to destroy you and your faith. You know, how often do you hear this? You're just not good enough. You don't obey enough. You can't keep asking God to forgive you for the same thing. God won't forgive you this time. You can't be a Christian if you really struggle with this, right? These are the things that cause us to lose our faith. And your protection against those things is to grab the truth of your salvation and put it on. You remind yourself that, wait a minute, salvation is a gift. I'm not saved because I was good enough. I'm saved as a gift because Jesus was good enough. You know, or if you think about the future salvation, one author said this, the great hope of our future salvation gives us confidence and assurance that our present struggle won't last forever, that we will be victorious in the end. And then Paul says, finally, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Now, the sword, so this is the offensive weapon, right? Everything else is defensive. And in some ways, the sword was also could be used to parry blows or deflect to so it was defensive in some sense, but this was the soldier's offense. This killed the enemy. This drove the enemy back. This injured the enemy. This enabled you know, people to make progress into enemy lines. And so what Paul is saying here is that your sword is the word of God. Your sword is the Bible. <clears throat> this is your weapon against the enemy. And so every time you quote scripture every time you bring god's word into your life into a battle you drive the enemy away whenever you share the word of god with someone else you are in a sense attacking the forces of evil and trying to liberate people from captivity james 4 7 says if you resist resist the devil he'll flee from you well you resist the devil by quoting scripture by telling, by, by, by reciting the word of God, that's how you attack back. You know, you've got your shield that protects you from his flaming darts, and then you strike back with this sword. This sword drives him back and then drives him away. It's interesting, in a bunch of places in Scripture, Jesus is pictured, even in the Old Testament, you see this image as well, with the sword coming out of his mouth. And that's the image here. It's the sword that comes out of the mouth it's the preached word that changes hearts that changes societies it's you sharing the word of god with the people that you know that frees them that can save them as they then come into relationship with god and it's funny cuz you know there's all these grand <clears throat> there's all these grand, this grand image of all these giant, like the giant shield and the breastplate and all these things. And then you just kind of have this sword that's your sole offensive weapon. It seemed a little bit insignificant, but then I remember Hebrews four twelve, which says this, it says, the word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any double edged sword and it penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit. And it judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. This is what the Bible does. It gets into our hearts and it helps us to help other people see what's in their hearts. And so we use this. And so this is why you need to understand Scripture. This is why you need to memorize it. right? Because what Paul is saying here when he's saying that the sword of the Spirit is the Word of God, he's saying it's the specific truths of God's Word that are most needful in a given situation. Okay, He's saying that When you are attacked with temptation and you respond with the Word of God, that's you striking back. Now, depending on what your temptation is will determine what part of Scripture you need to bring up, right? If you're tempted to lust, well, then you need to study what the Scripture says about lust and be ready to fight back when that temptation comes. If you struggle with loving somebody else or being patient... You need to study the truths of Scripture, get the verses together that will help you strengthen you and attack back when you're tempted to fly off the handle or be horribly annoyed at somebody else. Right? And so we need to figure out as we understand where our battles lie and how we're attacked, and we need to get the truths of Scripture so that we can use them. And so that's so this is these are the pieces of the armor that Paul that Paul gives us. Now, I want to close by asking the question, where does this armor come from? Where, Where does this armor come from? And I mean, in one sense, we get it because it says that it's the armor of God. And so what Paul is saying here is that this armor comes from God itself. And if you read the Isaiah passages, what you see is that this is literally the armor that God himself wore. If you read Isaiah 11, Isaiah 52, Isaiah 59, you'll see that God comes wearing this same armor. He's wearing the helmet, the belt, the breastplate. He's got the sword in his hand. And so this is the armor of God that Jesus had on. Right? This is what enabled Jesus to live a perfect life. He had, these, he had this armor on. And what's amazing is that because Jesus came into the world to do battle with the world's evil, and he stood toe-to-toe with the devil, and he prevailed. He prevailed against him in the wilderness temptation because he wore the armor, right? He prevailed against him throughout his ministry because he was throwing out demons. He was overcoming the powers of evil. He was doing miracles. He was teaching people. He was healing people of the effects of evil all around him. I mean, he was constantly prevailing over the devil. He prevailed against the devil in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before he was betrayed, he prevailed again and again and again throughout his ministry. Why? Because he was wearing the armor of God. He was wearing, he was the embodiment of God in armor. Now what's amazing, though, is that in his last battle with Satan, in his final battle with the devil, something happened. Think about this for a second. Think about this image of the armor. with Jesus wearing the armor? In his final battle with Satan... He took his helmet off. He stripped his helmet. He stripped himself of his helmet, and the enemy rammed inch long nails in in the form of a crown into his head. He stripped himself of his sword and his shield, and the enemy rammed nails through his hands. He stripped himself of his shoes, and the enemy drove nails through his feet. He stripped himself of his breastplate. And the enemy drove a spear deep into his side. He was naked on the cross. He was naked and he took all of the evil that the enemy could throw at him. All of the darkness, all of the attacks of the enemy. He took them into himself, unarmed and naked. And he was killed. He was killed. Why? Why did he do it? He stripped himself for you. He took on the power of the evil one. He took the punishment that we deserve for our own contributions into the kingdom of the enemy. For every time that we have participated in the kingdom of darkness... He took the punishment for our sins. And he did it because he loves you. He did it for you. He stripped himself for you. And as he stretched out his arms, he offers this armor to you. He took it off himself and he died so that he could give you this armor. So that you could wear it, so that you could have it on. Will you take it? I mean, would you wear it? There's some of you here who don't believe in Jesus yet. Don't you need this? I mean, we just we're not strong enough by ourselves. We need him, this armor. It's the gospel. We need his truth. We need His peace. We need His righteousness. We need His faith. We need His Word. And we get it when we believe. I mean, that's the reality. If you're not wearing any of this yet, you just need to say, God, I am sorry for my sins. I'm sorry I've lived apart from You for so long. But I believe in Jesus. I believe He had this armor and stripped it off for me you confess your sins and say i will follow jesus wherever he leads and god will put on the breastplate and the belt and the shoes and then if you've made that commitment you know then our responsibility is to take up his faith take up his word and to take up his salvation these are the things that will keep you strong These are the things, I mean, it's kind of amazing because these things will enable you to stand because you're going to stand with him on you, with him next to you, but also with him in you. And then you become part of what God is doing to push back the darkness in the world. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for Jesus. And I can't believe that He would be willing to strip Himself for me, to strip Himself for us. God, I just wish He came with other sets of armor that He could share with us, but He couldn't. He had to die for me. God, if there are people here who are just on the verge of committing to Jesus, help them see and understand this. Help them understand all of the wonderful, glorious ways that you bless your people. Draw them with your love and kindness and draw them by your strength. God, we all need help. We all need help in this, God. Strengthen us. Enable us to take these things up this afternoon, tomorrow morning, and this week. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.